You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Well, blogging heads and Meaning of Life TV viewers, welcome to the Sophia program. I am very pleased today to be joined by uh, doctors Daniel Finke and Massimo Piliucci. Um, and we're going to have a discussion about contemporary uh, Stoicism, meaning uh, uh, the current practice of Stoic forms of life uh, by people who call themselves modern or contemporary Stoics. Both um, Dr. Finca and Dr. Uh, Piliucci are involved in this, uh, I wouldn't call it a movement, but in this uh, uh, new, new, new form of life. And um, both run active uh, uh, blogs and online entities devoted to this. So, gentlemen, why don't you introduce yourselves a little bit, and maybe you can say a few words about what you're doing um, online and, and whatever other venues with regard to this uh, this uh, stoic, this new stoic, this new stoicism. Uh, Dr. Finke, would you like to go first? Sure. Um... I would I would qualify and say that uh, I, I would see stoicism as a part of what I do, um, but I I wouldn't uh, think of myself as a doctrinaire sort of stoic. Uh, but what I what I was was um, a philosopher who studied Nietzsche for my dissertation, and so uh, the approach to philosophy as a very uh, as as concerned with the big questions of how to live life. And sort of philosophy as um, as a way of integrating a picture of the world and a picture of ethics together. Uh, that's that's sort of the kind of philosophy that's always been interesting to me. And I'm interested in ethics from the whole range, from meta ethics to the very applied practical. And I uh, I also do uh, philosophical uh, practice work where uh, people will come to me for philosophical help in working through their problems, which I know uh, Massimo also does. And uh, so, so there's a certain sort of commitment to helping people think through their beliefs and their identities and their values and how these integrate in a very rational way. And uh, the whole idea behind philosophical practice is to, um, is, is, is to apply the same kind of critical thinking about the integration of beliefs and values and practice that philosophers are engaged in. Uh, to people's real world, real life sort of struggles to live more rationally and uh, to overcome, um, you know, the irrational irration irrationality that stands in the way of uh, their uh, happiness and their virtue, etc. And so, as a result of that, uh, as a result of that sort of practice, I've been, you know, looking back at the Stoics and realizing, of course, um, you know, in my own life there are certain sorts of stoic principles and habits of meditation that have been, even though there are few in number, they are uh, genuinely transformative to my own life. And I find, I always feel like when I'm working with my clients that I'm, that I'm essentially doing a stoic sort of inventory taking with them um, and giving them stoic sorts of advice. However, when I went back and looked at the texts themselves with a couple of clients, I found that I found that there's a lopsided emphasis in the actual texts that I would want to supplement. And I don't feel as comfortable just recommending someone go straight to the Stoic texts without a sort of filling in of another side of the story. And so that's how I got into on my blog on Camels with Hammers. I decided to go through actual Stoic meditations critically and say, 
you know, how would I update for someone who's looking for the kernel that's here? How would I help uh, give give versions of this and analyses of this that would be more well-rounded a picture than I was getting from them? So I feel very indebted to them, but I also feel like I want to be in critical dialectic with them and find a way to give people the sorts of valuable insights I've gotten with some supplementary and revisionary material uh, that I think would be a better contemporary picture. Okay, and so and we're going to link to your your is it Camels with Hammers? Yeah, so my blog is and, that, and that's hosted on Patheos. Yes, it's okay. on the Patheos uh, Atheist channel, and it's mostly an ethics blog. And I do some uh, post-religious uh, sort of stuff. Atheist. Okay, so there will be links to all of this. Everything that Massimo uh, and 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 Dan talk about, there will be links for for people to check out. Massimo, why don't you go ahead and talk a little bit about your work in Stoicism and anything else that's relevant to what we're going to talk about today. Sure. So um, I'm uh, currently a, a professor at uh, Philosophy City College, but as you know, uh, my original background is actually in evolutionary biology. Uh, I did that for you know almost a quarter of a century, and then switched to philosophy full time. And I'm actually not in, uh, a specialist in ancient philosophy. Um, I uh, my my actual job as a philosopher is actually in uh, the philosophy of science. However, a number of years ago, I got interested more and more interested. Um, in sort of the idea of a philosophy of life, which I, I suppose is, is one of the things that we're going to be talking about today, you know, why, what is it and why bother with it and that sort of stuff. Um, <clears throat> and so I started looking for uh, what is it that people who, who um, feel that they need some kind of general framework uh, in their lives look for. And then my first approach was naturally, since I am a, an atheist, uh, uh, it was psychohumanism. So I read some of the major psycho-humanist uh, you know, authors, and uh, for a while, actually for a number of years, I considered myself a psycho-humanist. And then more and more, it sort of started feeling like more than a philosophy of life, it was simply a you know, hodgepodge of a number of things that I agree with, um, but I, I, it didn't really feel like what I was looking for. So I started, in the meantime, I had uh, seriously turned to philosophy, so I started looking at um, first Contemporary ethics, uh, you know, utilitarianism, deontology, you know, Kantianism, that sort of stuff. And that didn't feel like, you know, it's interesting ideas about ethics there, but it really didn't feel like uh, anything like, like a, a general framework uh, of the kind that I was looking for. And then I finally uh, arrived at virtual ethics. So ancient, um, ancient ethics and in particular virtual ethics. And the first approach there typically is Aristotle. Uh, so I started rereading Aristotle and thinking about modern approaches to virtual ethics because virtual ethics has, um, you know, being updated and is being discussed by scholars uh, in uh, in mathematical theory. Uh, and then from there, sort of, I expanded because Aristotle, of course, there are some things that are really good and other things that really didn't didn't fit very well with what I uh, I was thinking. And so I studied. Uh, expanding, and I eventually arrived at the Hellenistic philosophies, and so I started studying Epicureanism, a little bit of skepticism, and so on and so forth, and finally I arrived at uh, Stoicism. And I remember that when I did arrive at Stoicism, which is pretty recently, less than a couple of years ago, uh, it's not that I'd never heard of Stoicism before, I studied it in high school uh, in Italy, but it never occurred to me that that could actually be anything other than you know a textbook uh, sort of example of philosophy, of ancient philosophy. Uh, when I arrived at Stoicism, sort of some, something clicked. In particular, the very first things that I uh, read uh, about Stoicism were uh, the discourses by Epictetus in terms of ancient sources. 
and uh, Bill Irvine and Don Robertson's books in terms of modern uh, uh, sources. And so I said, "Ha, huh, that's interesting. Let me let me see uh, if I if it's worth actually investigating further." And that's where I am right now. So I'm in the middle of a project. Um, my blog it's it's uh, uh, it's called HowToBeAStoic.org, which is uh, also the title of the book that I'm working on right now without the .org. Uh, part and uh, I'm right, right now in fact in my sabbatical um, and uh, I'm using the sabbatical to sort of further explore stories and write this book um, and then in the fall of this year I will be teaching a course on ancient and modern stoicism at City College in New York and they'll basically conclude my exploratory phase uh, about sort of stoicism and at that point I will actually make a decision on whether this is something that I want to continue or this was you know a fun two years and now it's time to do something else. And just one last thing because uh, uh, Dan, Dan mentioned it, um, are you also currently still engaged in philosophical practitioners work? Do you still see clients and is the, is the stoicism a part of what you do in that practice? Yeah, I've never done that in a, a sort of as a major thing. I, I've uh, I've explored that that um. You that were approach. licensed, correct? I mean, you did. I am the, licensed yeah. the, by the APPA, which is one of the national organizations that uh, do these kinds of things, philosophical counseling. I explored it as a sort of curiosity because I'm part of my, my broader interest. Really, is in in bringing philosophy back out to the public. So. You know, both my my how to be a stoic dot org uh, blog, but also my main uh, philosophy blog, which is called Plato Footnote dot org, uh, where I actually discuss general philosophy and philosophy of science, which are, as I said, is is my actual area of expertise. I, I, I sort of I have had an interest in in bringing philosophy to the general public in a variety of forms before. I, I have run for many years now a meetup group in uh, that discusses philosophy over dinner here in New York. Uh, you know, I contributed to books for the public and that sort of stuff. So to me, the philosophical counseling is was, was one more way of exploring the idea of making philosophy relevant to the to the public. I don't do it very often. Um, I have a couple of I don't advertise it. I have a couple of clients who find it useful, and so they keep coming back. Uh, but it's not a major part of what I do. And does the stoicism f f figure into it? You find heavily when you do do it. That depends on the on the client. Uh, uh, part of the idea of philosophical uh, um, uh, counseling is that you don't impose on on a client, uh, you know, your own particular philosophy or your preferred philosophy or whatever. What you do is you listen to what the problems uh, seem to be, and sort of, and then you look into the the very very large philosophical resources, uh, especially if you're considering you know two and a half millennia Western philosophy as well as Eastern philosophy. And, and then you simply try to provide the client with whatever tools, philosophical tools, might be more appropriate for his or her case. That said, there is one case that I'm working on now, one, one client I'm working with now, who is very heavily, you know, she, she responded very clearly and very strongly to stoicism, and so we're exploring that with her. But I've had other, uh, other venues and other, other uh, topics with other clients. Okay, great. So I think people have a really have a really good sense now of, of what your guys' involvement is in this is, and so let's just go ahead now and maybe each of you could talk a little bit about um, what this contempt what this contemporary stoicism means as you understand it. So um, uh, maybe uh, Dan can go first and talk about um, the extent to uh, to what extent um, is is. Is your form of is the form of life that you've embraced or that you're that is evolving that you participate in informed by stoicism your practice all the things that you do what 
first of all, what is the stoicism that you're using, and to and to what extent is that stoicism uh, sharing space with other frameworks, or is it or is it largely that you're just updating stoicism and, and using that? And then Massimo can speak to the same thing. Sure. What I would say is um, I I also share Massimo's passion for making philosophy very public. And that's, again, one of the reasons to turn here is because the Stoics are uh, one of the well-known and available resources, uh, right? They don't require a, a rigorous technical education to read. Um, they're, they're part of a, the classics curriculum. You know, they, they're, they're accessible. They, they speak right to problems of emotions in real life. So, so they're, they're the kinds of thinkers that uh, that lay people would be engaged with. And I also think that they represent um, sort of uh, an alternative, venerable sort of tradition within the Western tradition to uh, to the traditional, you know, monotheistic religious traditions uh, that are so prevalent. And so I really feel like um, in reclaiming, um, I really feel like there's there's a tremendous amount of philosophical work that people presume uh, is, is, is primarily for religion to do. Uh, the ordinary person thinks of, of ethics as something, uh, well, following uh, Stephen Jay Gould, for example, Stephen Jay Gould and his non-overlapping magisteria uh, idea basically says that science should do all the fact-based stuff and anything to do with values and how to live, we just give all that over to religion as its magisterium. And that bothers me because I really believe that the, these are the domains for – these are also domains for rational inquiry. They're not the domains for traditionalism and myth and supernaturalism and unverifiable kinds of claims. I would, I would, I would want to um, – I would want to very adamantly affirm – that, that that what people are looking for in terms of metaphysics and what they're looking for in terms of the meaning of life and ethics, that, that these are really rational endeavors, that they're philosophical endeavors, uh, not, uh, not ones to be a matter of adhering to, uh, to, to dogmatic faith traditions. And so as a result of that, it's very important to me that philosophers be um, making the connections between what we're doing abstractly and its practical relevance and so since the Stoics are one of the, um, one of the places where there's already an understood credibility, it feels helpful to me to engage in that sort of a place. So that's sort of part of my larger motivation here. And, and, and that also means, uh, so it means working through a, a specifically um, non-Abrahamic sort of approach to ethics. Uh, so that's, that's a little bit more of that uh, motivation and where I see it coming from and what I see its value as being. Now, I think that specifically, I think that what's distinctly stoic about this is that the entire approach to, uh, to, to these sorts of problems as a matter of a kind of therapy is a stoic, you know, sort of thing, right? So that's why I don't see the philosophical practice as a matter of teaching Stoicism, but I see it as a Stoics sort of thing to do. <laughs> um, you know, the, the constant analysis of every emotion for its rationality, the attempt at all times to take every emotion and to ask, how does this emotion fit with me doing my job as a human being, as a member of the community, to, to working together for, for the mutual good? 
every emotion, thinking about it in that bigger picture and thinking about it in terms of its rationality. Um, how will I be able to reconcile my feelings to reality and how can I rec reconcile my behavior, my responses to my feelings with my, with, with my intrinsic need to cooperate you know, in mutual uh, you know, mutual projects with the people around me. And so since I, I see that, I see that the Stoics are a meditation on that problem and the approach is to be constantly, uh, constantly aligning, do, is the way that I'm responding in accord with nature, you know, with, with, with the nature of the situation and with what I can control over it. And, 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 and with my own ability to focus on virtue. So that's really important to me. And then a couple of very quick applications for one thing, I the things I really like about the Stoics, I know on my blog I've been very critical, but but a couple of things I really think are positive are for one, I, I agree with them that virtue matters more than uh, pleasure. I think that I think that there's an overemphasis on the subjective character of ethics, of uh, the you know, the increase of pleasure states. And I think that in Aristotle and in the Stoics, I find a much, much, and in Nietzsche, all three of them, uh, the biggest influences on me in this regard. And I really, I really think that the intrinsic excellence of living well, as Aristotle would put it, and being virtuous, um, I think that these sorts of emphases are, uh, are, are, are more important, you know, than thinking in terms of pleasure as the forefronted good. And I think the other thing that was really uh, you know, and the, the control over circumstances, the, the recognition that emotions that are not constructive is the way I would put it, uh, the, you know, emotions that are not constructive, that, 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 that are about trying to wish things are other than they can be, uh, those sorts of emotions, uh, for the most part, need to be a stop before they make us miserable. And I feel like there's sort of a training and recognizing in every circumstance what can I really control and what I can't control learning to have the most, like a, like a discipline of in every situation you can't control, thinking through what is the most constructive way to feel and the most constructive way to act. Like that discipline is what I consider the core of it. And the most personal application was I went through a year mm -hmm. of um, uh, numerous uh, losses and I, and I realized an, an entire attitude that, I, the, that's, that involves um, minimizing one's expectations and one's demands on the world and focusing instead on what one does have at one's disposal. And that's a very rational approach to things where I found that, I found that a lot of us invest ourselves in particular things that we think we want to fulfill our pleasure, our, you know, our goals, et cetera. And we, we, we set our hearts on one way to fulfill the good. And I feel like what we do is we myopically attach ourselves to this one way to happiness that we, that we're, we're, we're set on. And then we, we put these blinders on and we miss, you know, thousands of other opportunities around us, right? Because we become so attached. And I think it was a stoic sort of insight that I had that what we should do is make our best effort, but then not invest in any particular conclusion. When things fail, let it go and open our eyes to all the things that are still available. You know, realizing that it's not a matter of relinquishing desire. It's, it's, a, it's a matter of recognizing that, that no one thing we set our hearts on is the way to accomplish that desire, but that our desire can be filled thousands of ways. And as soon as we find a failure of a desire to manifest, immediately turn our attention 
to how can I, how, what are the other routes to it instead? And that was a transformative insight for me. So I don't want to go on too long in one answer, but. Okay, yeah, so, go ahead, yeah. Massimo. You, you, you talk yeah, so, your version so now. Your question um, uh, originally, and I, I'm going to go through, through some of the same things that Dan just talked about from a slightly different perspective. But your question basically was, you know, what about these interesting updating stoicism to sort of a modern, to talk about a distinction between ancient and modern stoicism. Um, so here's how I approach the issue. I, I suspect that a major that, that if there is going to be any major difference between then and I, uh, then and I is it's really a question of emphasis. I mean, he seems a little more. Um, um, I was about to use the word skeptical um, of of sort of stoicism as a system. He sees certain individual components of it, from what I understand and from what I read from him, as useful. Um, I tend to actually embrace more of it. Uh, but it is a question of emphasis because I too am, of course, as I would hope any reasonable person would be, in sort of in, in critical dialogue with with what, after all, is an ancient tradition that uh, ceased to be active, you know, almost two thousand years ago. So it would be kind of weird to just say, "Oh yeah, let me go back to whatever Epictetus says and 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 take that as the gospel." You know, I, this is I really don't think of Stoicism or any philosophy in religious terms. I think of them as philosophical terms. Nonetheless, I think that the emphasis is in fact different. Uh, the current project uh, that I'm involved uh, in is really part of that project is the exploration of Stoicism uh, and how it can be updated. To, and an important part of it is how it can be updated to modern uh, modern sensibilities. So. Um, let me say a few things here, and they, those will, might, might actually uh, provide uh, fodder for, for discussion. So the first thing is, I'm interested in, as I said earlier, developing or adapting or, uh, uh, or adapting, if you will, a philosophy of life. And uh, you know, then the Kaufman often asks, asks me, well, why? You know, what, what, uh, what, what, the, what the hell is important about that, or why would anybody want to do that? Uh, to which my response, and I really don't mean to be facetious here, uh, is that everybody has a philosophy of life. Just that it's just that some people think about it and others don't. Um, some people take it as a default uh, or sort of making up as they go. Other people import a lot of it from religion. And of course, I'm perfectly cognizant that uh, providing a philosophy of life is only one of religion's, uh, uh, if not goals, certainly roles. Uh, it clearly also provides, you know, a social network and 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 so on and so forth. Um, but it certainly does provide a general framework for how to look at things. If you are a Christian, if you are a Jew, or if you are a Hindu, or if you are a Buddhist, you you think uh, it, in, of the entire world and your place in it in a particular way, and that I think is important. Um, so in, in in my way, of, of course, in my in, in my personal experience, you know, since I am not an atheist, uh, I'm sorry, I'm an atheist. I'm not a I'm not a theist. I rejected my Catholicism when I was young. Uh, to me, this sort of the, the theistic option or the religious option generally is, is is foreclosed. And as a professional philosopher, I do think you know, I, I go, going back to to Socrates, that yes, of course, philosophy can provide you. In fact, ought to provide you with a general framework. Now, whether that framework turns out to be a stoic one. Um, uh, or a different one, uh, you know, an Epicurean or even a modern, some modern version, uh, you know, of existentialism, let's say, or a uh, or pragmatism or a combination of different styles. That's that to me matters much less. That really does uh, depend on who you are and what resonates with you. You know, for some people, as I said, stoicism resonates very nicely and immediately. For other people, it just it's completely so alien that they're just not going to go that way. So that's part of the idea. Um, another way, another way of thinking about it is that I have come to see Stoicism as a very nice 
um, alternative, I was almost going to say response, but certainly an alternative to Buddhism. So a sort of a, a, Western, a Western version of Buddhism. Now, Buddhism, uh, of course, is much more complicated because it actually, unlike Stoicism, they, they originated about the same time. Stoicism, uh, sort of Buddhism originated maybe a couple of centuries before Stoicism, but not that much longer. Uh, but, of course, the major difference is that Stoicism was a practice philosophy for about five centuries, and then it got interrupted, although it was influential on Christianity, it was influential on a number of major philosophers, including, you know, all the way to Descartes and Spinoza, but still, as a philosophy was not practiced for, you know, more than 1,500 years, that's not the case for Buddhism. Buddhism has evolved over a much larger territory, for one thing, the geographical territory, uh, and has therefore absorbed different, different cultural elements, and it has been in continuous existence, so much so that my Buddhist friends tell me that it really is inaccurate to talk about Buddhism in the, in the singular, one should put it, to talk about it in the plural, because there are so many different um, ways of being a Buddhist, some of which are religious in nature, some of which are secular, some of which actually, especially the early Buddhism, or, uh, some version of the early Buddhism are actually very close to Stoicism and others that are not. So Zen Buddhism, for instance, which is very popular in the United States, is actually fairly far from, uh, from Stoicism. But there are uh, ancient ways of approaching things and meditating uh, in Buddhism that are actually very similar to the techniques that Stoics uh, came, came up with. So I think of it as a, as a sort of a, the Western equivalent to the Buddhism. Well, then why not become a Buddhist? I looked into that. It just didn't speak to me. Right, um, and in fact, I'm not the only one. One of the uh, others that I modern modern authors that I mentioned was uh, Bill Irvine, and in his book on Stoicism, uh, which I'll send you the link, uh, Dan K, uh, to post down on uh, on the on the site. Uh, Bill uh, actually started out interestingly uh, with a project very similar to mine, but his his interest was in Buddhism, and he wanted to compare it with Stoicism, with the idea that he was going to go into the Buddhist direction. And then the more he read about both, and the more he sort of tried practicing both, the more he actually uh, steered himself towards Stoicism. So, as I said, some things speak to some people and not, and not others. Now, in terms of modern Stoicism, why, why trying to update it as opposed to sort of just go with the original? For one thing, because we, are, we don't actually know a lot about the original. Uh, uh, you know, we, the only extant texts that we have from actual Stoics are from late Roman Stoics. You know, Epictetus, Seneca, uh, a little bit of Musonius Rufus, who was Epictetus' uh, uh, teacher, and of course Marcus Aurelius, who however was need, not a teacher and he was not writing for an audience, he was writing for himself. The meditations are sort of a personal diary. Um, we don't know almost anything about what, what the early Stoics, Zeno, uh, Cleantes, Chrysippus, and so on, wrote. We do have fragments. Um, we have what other people said about them, uh, but some of these sources are clearly hostile, so you don't never know, you know what, what you can actually trust about this. There's Cicero, which is a major source. He was not a Stoic, um, but he was sympathetic to the Stoic approach to things. So, so part of the reason to update Stoicism is that, you know, you can't just go with the ancient variety because, A, we know a fraction of what the ancient Stoics actually wrote, and also the Stoics themselves saw their own tradition as a lively and evolving one. And so, you know, Chrysippus disagreed with Cleanthes, Posidonius later on disagreed with Chrysippus, uh, you know, Epictetus has a, his own version of, you know, brand of Stoicism, which is different from Seneca's and so on and so forth. And, and Seneca, for instance, uh, very explicitly says in several points uh, in his essays, look, we, we don't have the final answers. There will be new generations. They'll, they'll find out new things. And, you know, the, and not only that, I'm not married to this particular way of doing things just because something is 
part of our school, I don't need to accept it. So those are all partial reasons to seek an update to, to uh, Stoicism. Um, the final reason for me is that it, I think it's a fun project. I think it's, you know, from a, from a purely philosophical perspective, it's a really interesting question to me to say, ha, huh, so there is a body of literature, partial as it is and varied as it is, uh, that that uh, goes back almost two millennia, and you think, you know, I think for whatever reason that that body of literature includes a lot of interesting ideas. So now, with two hundred, you know, two thousand years of hindsight, both in terms of progress made by philosophy, because contrary to some of our colleagues in the natural sciences, I actually do think that philosophy makes progress, um, and also, of course, progress in the sciences, because let's not forget that the Stoics, although the 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 crucial part of the Stoic philosophy had to do with ethics, with, with the way to live your life. Uh, they also were adamant that in order to do that, one has to understand what they call the physics, which we will today uh, consider a combination of metaphysics and natural science, probably, uh, and what they call the logic, which we will consider logic, cognitive science, psychology, you know, in general, anything to do with, with reasoning, with sound reasoning. So um, they themselves thought that natural science, metaphysics, and, uh, and, and social science were important uh, for their ethical project. Well, those fields have all changed dramatically in the last 2,000 years. And I happen to be, as I said, a scientist. Of course, I'm not an expert in all of those fields. I'm a, a biologist. But I know it in, enough where I can understand enough about those other fields. I say, ha, huh, that's, that's going to be fun to see what is it in the original uh, stoicism that can be preserved pretty much as it is what can be updated and what, frankly, can be, ought to be discarded because uh, it doesn't really hold up to modern scrutiny. Okay, so let me just ask you, Massimo, just I want to bring your part up to the same spot where, uh, Dan, to where Dan got because we are going to focus quite a bit on some of the specific fundamental central principles of this modern Stoicism or ideas of this modern Stoicism. So I just wanted to get your take do you generally agree with um, with Dan that at the heart of this modern modernized stoicism are things like mastery of the emotions, harmonizing of the emotions with uh, the externalities, the realities that are around you, this recognition of of uh, of what can what you can have an effect on and what you can't, this kind of um, I, I don't know how to generally characterize it, but did you agree with the sort of cluster of of principles or ideas that he identified as being the core of a modern stoicism? Uh, yes, with probably some qualifications that we can we can explore. I would also have and uh, uh, put an addition in there. One of the uh, things that we need to remember from the ancient Stoics is that they were, by modern standards, essentially materialists. They thought that the universe is made of matter, that everything is made of matter, uh, that everything is physical. Um, they were also, however, uh, um, uh, sort of teleologically inclined, meaning that they thought that, there was, that the universe had um, followed a rational plan. It was inherently rational. There was, they were not thinking... Um, of uh, anything like an, a Christian God, you know, outside of the universe, or outside of time and, and space that creates the universe and, and in, in, a, in a sort of conscious way. For them, they were more likely what we would today call pantheistic. They thought that the universe itself was God. In fact, they use uh, interchangeably the words God, Zeus, nature, and cosmos. Um, nonetheless, they did think that the universe was 
Um, what a biologist today would actually call a, uh, they, they had a vitalist um, sort of approach to things. Uh, modern science thinks, broadly speaking, this is a simplification, but I think it's going to be helpful. Modern science thinks of the universe in mechanistic terms, especially if you're talking about, let's forget for a minute the quantum mechanics, which nobody understands anyway. But if we're talking about sort of classical mechanics and even general relativity, uh, modern physicists, modern scientists understand the universe as a mechanical system, essentially. So there's a, it's a system where things happen, inert things move and bump into each other, uh, and they interact with each other causally. A vitalist, which, by the way, vitalism was actually a very active way of looking uh, um, at uh, um, certainly the biological world, even up into the early part of the 20th century, certainly the late 19th century. So this is not something that just the Stoics were thinking about. Uh, but vitalism basically says that the universe itself, um, sorry, I, I lost you because there you go, <laughs> um, that the universe itself is more, it should be thought more uh, along the lines of an organism. Okay. Mm -hmm. So think of it in terms of organismal universe versus mechanistic universe. Um, to me, an important part of updating stoicism is to say, well, hold on, because modern science doesn't really go that way. And so if we eliminate that part, or if we drop that part, or at the very least, if we want to be neutral about that part, meaning that um, one of the reasons I am attracted to Stoicism is, as a philosophy is because I do think it's actually compatible with atheism, agnosticism, and a number of theistic uh, and deistic uh, uh, approaches to, uh, to the question of the, of the supernatural, the question of metaphysical. So I don't want to say that, uh, that if you be believe that the universe has a logos in the sense of uh, a rational uh, uh, sort of motivating force behind it, then you're out of modern Stoicism. I think that's, that's nonsense, first of all, because that's the way the ancient Stoics thought. And second of all, because I, don't wanna, I really don't think there's any reason to be exclusionary. But at the same time, as an atheist, I don't believe in, an or, in a universe as an organism, conceived as an organism. So to me, one of the important questions is, okay, uh, well, is that a fatal blow? If I take that out of uh, the philosophy, you know, uh, and there are some people who have actually argued that, yes, if you take the teleology out, uh, that's a fatal blow. I don't believe so, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't be involved in this thing. I think there are ways of articulating uh, uh, the problem in a, in a sort of alternative ways of articulating the problem. To me, however, it is important to, uh, as a part of a modern stoic project, to incorporate the universal cause and effect and essentially the determinism and the physicalism that was, in fact, part of uh, the ancient Stoicism, but, but just updating it to whatever it is that modern science uh, best guess is about those topics. Okay, so um, let's move forward. Um, I suspect that the, the main interest for a lot of people in the contemporary version of Stoicism isn't going to be so much uh, the, the more abstract questions, although you can see how they underlie the practical ones. So what Massimo, what you were just saying about accepting the determinism and the materialism, certainly you can see how that then manifests in things like um, being very clear about what you can change and what you can't, right? Free will, right? I mean, discussion free will. But I, I suspect that for most people, what's going to be the most interesting about this is the practical dimension. And so right. maybe each of you could to, the, to as much of a degree as you can, um, crystallize into maybe a, a digestible number of points what you take the primary I, uh, sort of benefit, life benefits of Stoicism 
in light of the basic fundamental ideas of Stoicism. So what are these ideas about the emotions, about other things that modern Stoicism uh, uh, embraces that you think are among the, mo the more productive and useful in terms of uh, creating a good way of life? Dan, you want to go first? Sure. Um, so a couple of things that I would, I would distinguish here is, let me piggyback off of where Massimo left off is uh, let me let me just uh, kind of a couple thoughts I had while he was talking is I think that it's I think that it's a creative project to say that uh, what do we do when we no longer believe that all things happen for a reason uh, how do we still like I, I guess I guess I guess I look at the Stoics as motivated in a in a very practical way uh, I, I see them as having certain sorts of therapeutic goals so to speak. And I feel like sometimes their metaphysical reasoning and their natural philosophy is um, guilty of, or at least could be accused of, rationalization. Now it might be uncharitable, um, but there is a certain sort. There are certain sorts of syllogisms which, if they were genuinely the way these arguments were made, they do seem rationalizing. They do seem to say we have to deal with this reality, and so let's find a way to say that it was natural, rational, and good even if it really isn't. And, and I think that there's a, they're, they're very guilty of the just world fallacy quite often. But so what I think the, the modern thing to do, though, is say the therapeutic benefits they were going for are still important. And the goal of figuring out a way to conceive of the universe that is both honest and therapeutic is the stoic motivation, I feel like. And I feel like the challenge is if we feel like some of their solutions were untenable to modern um, standards of logic and and modern understanding about statistics and you know and fallacies, like I, like I feel like and cognitive biases, I feel like what it is to really pursue stoicism now is to ask, given what we do know, how do we reconcile ourselves? To, uh, to, to certain harsh truths. And, and, and how do we, and, and, and I think the other thing about being a Stoic is Stoicism is more than a specific philosophy. It's a kind of virtue. It's a kind of sure. unto itself, right? Like Stoicism is admired by people because it is a kind of steely resolve in the face of unfortunate misfortune. And I find that a better, a modern Stoicism has even more steely resolve to, that it requires because there are truths that you know um, that that it feels like the others the older Stoics had to sweep under the rug or did uh, like they didn't yeah, let, let face. Me, yeah. Let me let me uh, challenge you a little bit, but but largely agree actually with what you just said. So um, I actually was almost um, you you kind of did this at the, in the last uh, remark you just made, but I I would almost. Uh, uh, Turn around uh, your initial reasoning, which was let me let me see if I got it correctly right. So okay, the Stoics at some point, the ancient Stoics at some point, basically feels almost like they were rationalizing. You know, shit happens and it happens for a reason, and here's why reason, and so I you should feel better about it because after all, it's not shit. Um, I actually think that that's a problem that it's much more uh, present for modern Stoic than for an ancient one. So I don't I don't see any reason. 
you know, we don't we don't really know we don't have access, of course, to the internal thought processes of the ancient Stoics. But based on on the what they were writing, especially based based on their philosophy, I actually don't see any reason to uh, to say or, or to suggest that they uh, were rationalizing things. If you do start with the idea that the universe has a logos that uh, is equivalent to sort of some kind of providence. Um, and they use very often these metaphor of, you know, the universe, including ourselves, are all part of the same body. And yeah, you might be, you know, the foot of that body. And sometimes the foot needs to be amputated, for instance. And sure, for you as a foot, that's not going to be a lot of fun. But you have to understand that in order for the organism to survive, sometimes that's necessary. Uh, and so similarly, you know, shit happens to you. And that's pretty bad. Um, by common sort of standards of evaluation, but if you understand that that is part of a sort of general plan for the universe, that is the best rational plan that is possible. It's not perfect. They were very clear about saying, you know, there's, there's no such thing as a perfection here, but it is the best rational plan that is possible to have. Then, you know, you just deal with it because you're part of, the, of, the, of this general mechanism. So if you see the cosmos that way, I actually think that it's easier to get consolation uh, just in the same way, I would say, or in a similar way to which, you know, a modern Christian would say, well, uh, God m works in mysterious ways. You know, I just lost my son or something um, uh, like that. But, you know, there, there, there is a, I trust that there is a reason for all this happening and, uh, and you know, it's all for the best uh, as much as I suffer as a result of it. A modern Stoic, especially a modern Stoic who rejects, rejects the teleology, because as I said, you can be a modern Stoic and accept the teleology. But if you reject the teleology, as I do, uh, then, then really there you have, A, uh, a little bit more of a harder time sort of feeling good about shit happening, uh, number one. And, and more importantly, uh, um, uh, there may be a danger there of really rationalizing and say, well, I got to save my system here. And so I'm going to come up with some kind of reason why this, this, this is actually okay. Uh, so I try very, very carefully not to do that. I'm sure that you know uh, I, I, I'm subjected to everybody else's cognitive biases anyway. Like like everybody else, I have the same cognitive biases. Um, but I'm trying to be very careful about it. So uh, the way I modify that is, I, I what I keep from the ancient Stoic perspective is the universal cause and effect. We live in a in a universe that is that is uh, regulated by laws of physics. I don't think the universe is, itself is rational, but I do think it's understandable by rational means. Otherwise, we wouldn't have science uh, to begin with. And so what I keep from the ancient, uh, you know, the, the Stoics were famous for, for their phrase, you know, uh, live according to nature, uh, by which, of which there are a number of interpretations. But the most common interpretation is the nature of the universe and human nature in, per in particular. So, so you understand the, the nature of the universe, you understand human nature, and that helps you regulate your own life and, and live your own life. I think that is still valid with the big caveat that the, the nature of the universe, in my mind, is neutral from an ethical perspective. The universe doesn't care. Uh, yes, I am part of the universe, but not in the same way in which a foot is a part of an organism, uh, and so when stuff happens to me that it's unpleasant, uh, I don't say, well, it's for the best. It isn't for the best, it's, but it is what it is. Uh, it's the result of universal cause and effect. And therefore, it, is, it, it would be irrational for me to get upset at the universe, uh, just like is, I think, irrational to, for somebody 
given modern science to say, oh yeah, I'm glad that this is happening because after all, there is a plan. I don't think there is a plan, but the fact that there is a plan, that means also that it's not rational for me to sort of get upset about um, the universe. And that helps me. I find that comforting. Yeah. And what I would say to that is, right, so to me, what the stoic thing to do would be to, um, you know, be steely-minded about the ways that we don't get consolation, uh, be, be sort of the sober mind that's willing to tell people, you know, yes, we can't promise you the moon. And I feel like that's the corrective against a lot of, like I go to a religious um, funeral and I get very offended that at a time where we should be looking at death in the eye and really facing this reality, um, some of these uh, some of these Christian funerals will be focused on how there's resurrection, and I feel like there's uh, something extremely spiritually impoverished to me to, in the face of death, um, lie about death. I'm honestly, I'll be I'll be just be frank about that. I feel like that's I feel like that's troubling, and I feel like that's the stoic part of me which wants a different narrative, uh, one that is willing to really really cope with this as it really is. But I also think that on the flip side of it, I think that the rational mindset is to think constructively and to look about, look at the ways in which, like, so, so to me, nature doesn't provide as many provisions as the Stoics may have said, but to look at the provisions that it does provide, right? And to, and to take that mindset uh, to, recognize, um, to recognize often that when we look at our own nature as a particular finite being uh, with a particular set of psychological dispositions, that we can often find that where we are when we have followed our own uh, beliefs about what's virtuous and our own, um, our own reason about the world, we can often find that we're in a place that matches what our minds are fit for. Um, in other words, in other words, we can kind of recognize that our own, our own instincts and our own nature may not bring us to where a one size fits all picture of the world would be, but they do kind of guide us to often to where we have to be as an individual and kind of that sort of recognition, I think is a truth. Um, I don't think that's just a rationalization. Like in other words, to really look at yourself and say, yes, maybe I'm not meeting some external metrics on a one-size-fits-all picture, but am I fulfilling my nature and my abilities? And as a limited being, to recognize the value in that. I think there's a strong emphasis on appreciating. I think there's a, I think there's a great relief in the Stoic recognition of the limits of your control. Um, one Stoic practice that I've had, I consider a Stoic practice, is when things go bad, I do a very quick assessment. Is there anything in my past that could have prevented this? And sometimes I realize, you know what? No. And really thinking that through absolves the anxiety that somehow I have to have not let this happen. It lets me realize this was going to happen either way. And then I learn to not feel the blame on top of the frustration. Right. Or, or I can isolate this was the wrong move I made. Okay, I learned something from this experience. These are very practical things that, that, that fit with a naturalistic and no bullshit attitude to really look. And then I think a third thing that's a no bullshit but comforting thing that I, that I think, again, is missed in our hedonism, in the broader culture, 
is that your virtue has effects intrinsic to it. And it's not about being able to control people's responses because you'll never be able to get that, what you want it to be. But to recognize that what you do that's virtuous because our virtues, insofar as our virtues are what actually lead to constructive good, when we're virtuous on the net, we do create the good. Like one, like I'll, I'll give a very personal example is that, um, is that when I left academia to decide to go and I teach philosophy now online on my own and do this practitioner work and I blog. And, and in leaving academia because I just didn't want to approach scholarship in the way that, you know, I needed to, to get a job. Um, it's the long story. But in leaving it and realizing I never got tenure or I never did these various things, um, there was a recognition, and I was not going to ever be recognized as even having been at some of these universities. Um, you know, Massimo probably has no idea I taught at City College <laughs> where he teaches. No, that's right. I did not. Because <laughs> it was an adjunct. You just don't exist. And that's not, not of course, not to criticize Massimo. Well, um, I've been, to be fair, I've been at City College only two years. So Okay. So, well, <laughs> it was probably after, uh, yeah. after your time. Okay. Uh, I was just kidding, though. Uh, but so the point being that, like, what I had to recognize was I still had 2,500 students in that 11 years. And what I did matters, even if it has nothing to do with on a daily basis, any pleasure or recognition. No, there's, I didn't make any significant money off of it. I'm in debt from it. I, I don't have a retirement fund. What I know is the virtue of, do, the, virtue of the work was a contribution. It's in the students, and that's okay. And I let go of the attachment to that particular way to do philosophy or be a professor. And I never have any regret, ever. Like, I just focus on the opportunities ahead. And I, and I appreciate that I did the virtuous work in the past. And that sort of thing is the way that you kind of take the true aspects of the reality and adjust your emotions to focus on those and trust that if you're following your own nature and you're trying to be as virtuous as possible, often that's a better net result regardless of the external uh, roses being thrown at you or not. Right, right. So I make make a couple of comments about actually one comment and one suggestion. Uh, I want to go back to your uh, discussion of regret um, and expand a little bit on it because I think that's a important as you were uh, uh, saying, and, and and b it is one of those things that it's often misunderstood about stoicism. So I, I think when it, it's worth go back to, to it, and then if if Dan K is okay with it, I'd like to read actually a short uh, passage from the discourses, which I know both of you find uh, sort of problematic. Um, uh, because I think that's going to give us a way to discuss, maybe flesh out the differences, or, or, or maybe not, but, but at least to sort of bring it out, uh, because it is one of those jarring passages that people look at. It, it's like, what the hell is this thing? <laughs> um, okay, so first the regret stuff. So one of the basic concepts of Stoicism is that you should be focused on the ik et not, right? The here and now, uh, which means no regret, and no fretting, no fear about the future, no regret about the past, no fear about, about the future. Now, people may very often misinterpret this. I, I do think it's a misinterpretation. I say, oh, what? You mean you are, you, you, you're not supposed to learn from what you've done in the past? Or you're not supposed to you know, plan for the future? No. Uh, notice the change of wording, right? It's, it's one thing to regret the past, uh, and it's another one to learn from the past. Regret is... Uh, a, a constant reminding yourself, oh, I should have done or I could have done, but well, you didn't, and you know, this is the way it is, now what are you going to do about it? 
That's not to say you cannot learn from the past, as you, as you were pointed out. You, of course, you, you, as a rational being, I would hope that you will learn from the past. But that's not, that doesn't license. It's a different thing from you know, regretting. Same, same thing symmetrically into the future. Should I not plan for the future in a rational way? Of course, I should plan for the future for rational, in a rational way. Um, but what I should not do is to be afraid to fret about what might or might not happen in the future. So, so you know, my, the obvious example is I go for a job interview, which fortunately uh, uh, the last one was actually the one I did at, at City College, and it went very well, and I don't plan on doing anymore, uh, uh, fate permitting, as the Stoics would say. But, you know, you go for a job interview. Well, the idea is try to, to not worry about the outcome of that interview or about, you know, what's going to happen and what's not going to happen. The only thing you need to do is to focus on preparing yourself for the best, both mentally and intellectually, you know, and psychologically for the interview. And that's it. And that, of course, can be done now. It is something you're doing now. You're not doing it in the future. Um, so I do think that, the, that those are actually very valuable insights and very valuable sort of practical suggestions even that, that Stoicism gives you. Now, if you don't mind, uh, I'm going to read that bit from, from the discourses and, um, and um, <laughs> we'll, go, we'll go there. So now this is, of course, the translation actually that, that, that Dan um, um, uh, F. Uh, sent out. I don't know which source you use. There are different, you know, obviously the different translations of Epictetus, but... Um, We'll go with this one. Maybe we can link to the actual uh, sort of to the to the source. Um, I quote: "With regard to whatever objects give you delight, are useful, or are deeply loved, remember to tell yourself of what general nature they are, beginning from the most insignificant things. If, for example, you are fond of a specific ceramic cup, remind yourself that it is only ceramic cups in general of which you are fond." Then if it breaks, you will not be disturbed. I think up to this point, very few people would have a problem with it. It's like, yeah, of course, you know, don't get upset about a stupid ceramic cup breaking, right? Actually, I actually, I actually already don't agree with it. I actually, <laughs> I actually already don't agree with it. <laughs> but I think that very few people would. In general, even if you disagree, you could say, well, okay, that's reasonable enough. I may, I may disagree in this in the, in the specific case of a, you know something that, of course, is, has sort of sentimental value. Right. 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 Yeah. But, but it's, you know, generally speaking, the idea is, of course, not to be attached to objects because they're just objects. And, you know, yes, you might regret that they broke, but that's it. But then it goes on, and this is the bit that it's crucial, right? He says, if you kiss your child or your wife, say that you only kiss things which are human, and thus you will not be disturbed if either of them dies. It's like... Holy crap, right? <laughs> like, what kind of a psychopath was this Epictetus kind of guy, right? So let me let me tell you my take on it, and then and then and then if Dan disagrees uh, with it, then we can have a discussion. So a couple of things. First of all, we need to put this in context, both historically and philosophically, right? So I wouldn't say to one of my clients, let's say something today, like something like this, right? I would I would probably quote Epictetus. And then I would say, hey, by the way, this is what it means in a modern context. Uh, and I'll get to that in a moment. But the, the ancient context is important. First of all, Stoicism, just like all of the other Hellenistic philosophies, and I have heard argued, like Buddhism itself in the, in the East, arose in a particular historical and cultural moment, uh, a moment when people really felt, for good reasons, that they had very little control over very high level of turmoil that were happening in society. 
So you know, these these were periods of revolutions, wars, when your life was pretty cheap and your 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 uh, uh, loved one's life was pretty cheap. Right. Um, so one way, sort of philosophically, to you know, historically, sorry, to understand what Picard is saying here is like, you know, he's not living in 21st century America where unless you're a particular type of minority in particular neighborhoods, your life is not cheap, right? Um, you're, not, you're not likely to lose your child or your, or your wife uh, during the night. But in Roman times and in ancient Greek and Rome, you were. Um, and so that's one thing, and I think does, one consideration that if one keeps in mind, does keep, take the part of the blunt, bluntness out of that particular quote. But the more profound reason, of course, for taking the bluntness out is, in fact, the philosophical one. Remember that unlike me, Epictetus really did believe in a providence, in a providential universe, right? So for him, his wife and his child and himself, because he, he says the same about himself, by the way, in a number of other places in the discourses, right? Um, he was part of this organismal universe, uh, of which he may turn out to be the foot with a gangrene that needs to be amputated, and it is going to be for the, for the, for the, for the good of, of, the, of the cosmos. So once you take that quote, in the proper historical and philosophical context, it's still pretty harsh. But it is the kind of harshness that it really comes out of looking at things as they were at the time in the eye, and also coming at looking at those things from a particular philosophy of consolation, because of the providence and all that. The problem is, from my perspective, well, how do I translate this today to myself or to, uh, or to a client of mine, maybe, who might have helped, you know, uh, lost a, a relative or something like that, right? And what I would do, in fact, what I've done, because I've recently lost my mother, for instance, uh, and, and I've had friends or, 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 or a client particular who did lose significant others. And I did go back to this and other uh, sort of stoic passages. And the way I interpret it in sort of modern terms is to say, look, you were lucky, and, and by the way, this is, I'm not just making this up because I know that Epictetus himself actually says something on those lines, but um, you were lucky that you met these people, that were, they were important in your life for such a long time. In fact, they were so important that you regret so dramatically having lost them, that you're so affected emotionally having lost it. And there's nothing wrong with the emotion itself. The emotion itself, the Stoics themselves would say, it's an automatic response. It just comes. There's nothing you, you cannot control. The, the raw emotion. Um, however, I go back not to Epictetus, but to Seneca and to his letters of consolation. And the famous letter that he wrote in consolation to Marcia, a friend of, her, of his, whose uh, son had died several years before. Uh, you can see what Seneca does that. He says, look, uh, grief is normal and you have to go through it and it's, there's nothing to be ashamed about it. But if you dwell on it, if it lasts for a very long period of time, like in that, in that case for years, if it affects your ability to function, your, your life, your, your all attitude toward you know, what needs to be done and so on and so forth, now it becomes a problem. And one way to get around that is to re remind yourself that everybody dies, including yourself. It's a, it's a natural thing. It's a thing from, of the universe. It is a, uh, a natural process. And that your focus should be on appreciating what you have when you have it, and of, of sort of remembering the good that you had once it, is, once it is gone. So if you put it that way, I think you can fairly reasonably and without, I hope, without sort of rationalization, uh, 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 still retain a lot of the, of the original insight. 
See, this raises a couple of interesting major issues here. Um, first of all, let me briefly say that, uh, and, and, and I think you guys both know this, and there's a very good philosophy article on this where, um, I have to look up who said it, um, who wrote it, but, but the, the, the scientific literature, psychology literature does seem to show that people are able to recover from loss of loved ones. Yeah. And to a degree that's counterintuitive and almost bothersome to a lot of people. Uh, you know, it's almost like we recover too well for what we would imagine. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that there are certain sorts of psychological baselines that almost all of us seem to have, and that no matter what tragedy, people will tend to return to their own baseline, even after the kind of grief that, that a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people reject the stoicism out of, I think, a very healthy sense that they would want to keep grieving out of a, out of a, out of as an expression of the fact that they truly love. And if they don't feel the grief, they would feel like that somehow was invalidating of the love that they had. And that's troubling. Um, uh, I think there's a couple of issues that this raises, right? So we can just uh, throw them on the table to get to them here. One is then about what is the value of feeling an emotion for its own sake? Uh, even if so, so many critics of the Stoics will say uh, they want to feel the emotions. Uh, if they could have a pill that would skip the grief or skip certain negative emotions, that would be uh, worse, right? That that it's better to actually have it, uh, both as a matter of connection to other people, and I would also argue, <coughs> sort of, uh, excuse me, as sort of the fitting emotion for the negative thing in a certain yeah. way. Um, the other thing I want to bring up here is that uh, I think one of the oh, and briefly though, on the other hand, though one thing I would I would say to in, in uh, to bolster the Stoic case is is there is the consideration that the deceased probably don't want you to grieve forever, or if they do, they probably don't sure. love you. I mean, like I've had conversations <laughs> with my fiance where I say, you know, uh, if 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 I die before you, I want you know, please, I want you to have you know, two months of ruinous grief, uh, mm -hmm. and then please get on, like, please be happy again, you know? Um, and then, then I think the final, the, the, the next thing I want to kind of put here is I think that the, the stoicism has a, has a problem where it's, it's a wonderful sort of self counseling, but a lot of stoic attitudes can be thrown at people as an obligation um, and so there are people who feel like their grief does go on beyond the three months and they get a lot of, uh, callous people telling them, oh, it's been three months, move on. Right. You're, right, you're off right, schedule. Right, right, right. You know? and, right, right. and, uh, that also raises this issue of people getting offended, uh, you know, is, is another one of these sort of issues where the Stoics talk about, uh, if, if it doesn't harm me, I mean, I'm sorry, if I, if I don't allow myself to be harmed, then I'm not harmed. If I don't feel, if I don't take something as hurting, then it, then, I, then there's no harm. And, and there's a, there's a, there's sort of a negative, even though the Stoics themselves talk about all of us working together and being cooperative, there are a lot of people who want to discount each other, other people's pain, uh, people who suffer, uh, injustice of racism or sexism or, you know, um, you know, that's offensive. They want to say, look, you're only offended because you allow yourself to be hurt right. instead of acknowledging that the maliciousness of what was done or the historic oppression that's recapitulated deserves a moral pushback. 
And so some of this gets a stoic veneer of a lot of callousness towards others instead of a therapy towards oneself is kind of a, an abuse of stoicism that I see. So I was wondering right. your thoughts on that. Absolutely. I think you, 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 you touched on, on several interesting points here. So first of all, I agree. The, the, last, the very last thing you said, that that's an abuse of stoicism. Right. I mean, if, if there is one thing that I've learned um, by sort of study frequenting people in the modern stoic community is that the refrain is always never use stoicism as a club to hit other people on the head. <laughs> this, this is not the idea. This is, it's a personal philosophy. It's about you improving and overcoming things and not about telling others you should overcome and, 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 and deal with things in a certain way. If they ask you, if they're curious, if they're interested, by all means, you direct them to you know, the proper sources or you, uh, or you share with them. But you don't go around telling them, oh, you really shouldn't feel like this because you're not a good story. Um, in fact, Bill Irvine, again, uh, who I mentioned earlier, at the end of his book, he even goes around saying that, that really, unless you're a teacher, in which case you probably cannot avoid it, uh, or a sort of public figure of some sort, you really should practice what he calls stealth stoicism. That is, you practice for your own, for your own self. And in fact, there is quite a bit of textual evidence in uh, um, Marcus, you know, where he says, uh, you know, don't talk about how to be a good man, just be a good man, right? So, so go out and, and give, live by example. Lead other people if they want. If they want to learn from you, you they do it by by example, by how you deal with things, not how you talk about other people should deal with things. So I think you're right. That is a potential uh, abuse of stoicism, however, not not an actual a good use of stoicism. Now um, that said, there is this interesting issue, which uh, in fact I was read, I was going about to suggest that we read um, also the, the the second quote you sent out, which is from Marcus on the other hand, which deals with um, which then K. Uh, pointed out, uh, can be interpreted or discussed in terms of sort of social justice and all that. And, and that is a point that I think really we should explore more because one of the criticism, in my mind, is got it, but one of the criticism of stoicism is that it's all about yourself and it's not about, sort of, it's not a social, you know, it doesn't have a social component. So let me first read Marcus. Um, it says, choose not to be harmed and you won't feel harmed. Do not feel harmed and you have not been. And also he says, it can ruin your life only if it ruins your character. Otherwise, it cannot harm you inside or out. Now, again, this sounds pretty harsh. It's like, whoa, what do you mean? <laughs> There's all sorts of injustice that clearly has hurt me or clearly has you know, ruined my life or, or, or otherwise sort of negatively affected my life. But first of all, I, as you know, then um, or both of you actually, uh, since you're both philosophers, uh, one of the crucial things that you learn in philosophy 101 is that you always ought to read even your opponents with charity. You know, so not not go there and pick the side. Like, ah, he said that, and therefore well, look what well, look what an idiot he is. Now, of course, as we all know, this is the theory. In practice, I've seen plenty of colleagues, and maybe I've done it myself. You know, actually going and nitpicking uh, uh, in order to make a point rather than reading charitably. But but ideally, we want as philosophers to read people charitably. And so again, you need to understand that. Or, so people need to understand that those quotes from Marcus were in an interesting context. First of all, he was writing to himself. Right? He wasn't advocating this to an audience. He wasn't sort of preaching or anything like that. I mean, Marcus often is characterized as preachy, which is a kind of a you know, I can see where that comes from out because it's, the tone sounds that way. But once you realize that that was his personal diary, you know, at most you can accuse him of preaching to himself, um, which is hardly a, a sort of a, a, a defect. Um, 
But more importantly, I think what he's saying there is that at the very least, far too often, we confuse two different things. Um, and I do think this goes to the, to the social uh, justice movement, for instance. Um, we confuse actual harm with sort of uh, the kind of harm that it is, uh, either is psychologically feels good or is, uh, uh, you know, um, easy to indulge on and so on and so forth. So if somebody, in, you know, one of Marcus classical examples is if, if, if you insult a rock, you're not going to get much out of it because the rock isn't going to react, right? And then so that you should go around being, behaving like a rock. It's like, oh, you insulted me? Fine. So I have another, I have um, um, an example again from Bill Irvine. He told me um, of this um, instance where a colleague of his in the philosophy department, right, uh, one day sort of meets him in the, in the halls of the department and, and uh, says to Bill, so, Bill, I was citing one of your works in, 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 in one of my books, and you know, Bill's reaction was, oh, well, I'm glad to hear that, I'm glad it's useful and all that. And then the colleague continues, yeah, I still haven't decided if you're just stupid or evil, right? Now, normally, when somebody tells you something like that, what are you going to do? I mean, you got to, you know, that ruins your day, that, you know, that's just one of your colleagues, the people you share your, you know, department, right? Uh, so either that or you punch him on the nose. I mean, I don't know what, what the normal reaction would be. Bill's reaction was like, um, well, that's only because you read one of my papers. If you read the whole thing, you would see that I'm really evil, right? <laughs> this, of course, he took that from Epictetus. Epictetus has, to, has a very similar sort of, oh, you think that's, that I'm bad. That's because you don't know the half of it. What that is, is an example of reacting with humor and self-deprecation to diffuse a situation that would otherwise be hurtful to you and probably not particularly constructive in general. That doesn't mean that there isn't a fact of the matter about somebody being wrong here about something, right? So uh, now let me expand and then I'll shut up for a minute because I want to hear what you, what you say. But um, let me expand to sort of the social, the social justice movement, right? Um, and uh, uh, to say... For instance, you know, as we all know, that there have been a number of instances of students on campuses uh, being upset about, you know, uh, uh, this comment or that speaker or something like that, right? And they take that as, you know, let's say, the invitation of a speaker who is controversial um, as, uh, as a sort of a personal attack, as a, as a lack of a safe space and so on and so forth, right? So the stoic response there, if I were one of those students, I'm not telling these students to do that, but if I were one of those students, I would say, well, wait a minute. What, it, what actually is harmful? <clears throat> I am not harmed by somebody uh, proposing an opinion that is different from mine, even radically different from mine, and even an opinion that is actually uh, uh, so at odds with mine that I, find, I think it is unjust or I think it is you know, uh, indefensible and so on and so forth. What is harmful is if that opinion actually becomes policy or if that opinion or if that uh, whatever that wrong is, it's not going to be corrected and so on. So what is my, my rational, best, most effective reaction to this? Is not to be offended by that person, is not to, certainly not to say that person shouldn't speak because that is going to undermine my own cause. I cannot then go out into the world and say I want to be heard because I just told somebody else that they cannot be heard. Uh, open parenthesis, 
I contribute to the ACLU because they actually defend the Ku Klux Klan, among other things. And I guarantee you, I have no sympathy for the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, but I think that they're doing the right thing, close parenthesis. But that doesn't stop you from cultivating positive, what a Stoic would call a positive emotion, which is a sense of justice, a self of righteousness, that you have to go out and do certain things to counter whatever it is that you think is, is wrong. So, uh, you know, if you're talking about social justice, then do something about it. Either organize a counter, uh, counter demonstration or speak publicly or, uh, you know, volunteer or do whatever it is or run for office. You know, do whatever it is in a positive sense that counters the injustice. Um, don't just sort of feel like, oh, I've been offended and, you know, poor me, the rest of the world is so, is so bad. Yes, the rest of the world is bad. That's true. It's, it's a fact. Um, and again, Marcus, in another delightful passage, says things like, if you do not expect, why, why do you expect people not to be bad? That's irrational. That's people are bad. You know, some people are bad. It's, it's just a fact of, of life. So deal with it. But deal with it doesn't mean giving the bad people a pass. Mm -hmm. It just means, why are you surprised? This, this is a fact of life, and you deal with it in the most constructive, most proactive way possible. You don't complain about the universe. You get up and do something. As Marx said, not, not exactly a stoic, um, you know, the point of philosophy isn't to understand the world, it's to change it. Right? Mm -hmm. So uh, I think a stoic would say the point is not to get upset. The point is to do something about it. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that, but I think um, I think there are a few things that I that I think need to be directly put on the scales to balance out what Aurelius says, um, because on the one hand, um, on the one hand, a lot of uh, on the one hand, I think being offended is a moral emotion. It's a, it's not merely being displeased, and I feel like in our culture we've we've um, we we've taken a lot of a lot of people who've cried offense illegitimately, um, where you know, uh, I mean, a, a, a standard example, I'll, I'll, you know, from is 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 a religious believer claiming that the mere the mere challenge to their beliefs of an atheist existence is offensive. I mean, you right. have extremes like that. Right. Um, you know, merely curse words in you know appropriately marked movies is offensive. You know, there there are, there are so many things that were an outdated conception of morality or, or a very um, unfair sort of religious privilege or whatever other kinds of privilege, that there's a certain sort of attitude where that's what taking offense is. It's not, it's not really wanting to deal with contrary ideas or it has something to do with um, impoliteness. And, you know, and, and, and so being offended is just your, you know, like uh, it's, it's like a social politeness faux pas. Um, and I, and I feel like what's happening, though, is that the moral force of moral offense, that, that, that the charge of being offense that should be reserved for something where you say, look, this is morally wrong. And, and I'm not just expressing that I find this unpleasant. And I'm not just expressing that I can't handle somebody else's ideas or I can't just, you know, I'm offended because it's a moral harm here. Yeah. And I think, I think part of the problem is that when women or blacks or let's just say marginalized people is the catch-all, sure. uh, when, when marginalized people uh, live in a world in which they are regularly, <clears throat> regularly not catered to, like the, the mainstream is pitched towards um, you know, people on, on whatever axis that aren't like them, uh, what winds up happening is 
most of their life is adjusting to the the mainstream not really accommodating them sure and learning to deal with it and certainly uh going with the flow because if they expect in every room to be understood and catered to it's not going to happen and they're going to be right. frustrated all the time and so there's 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 uh what winds up happening is in order to recognize that there are these systematic ways in which some people are constantly marginalized Number one involves a resensitization that it is a problem, that people don't get so used to letting go of it on a personal level that they don't recognize that, that, that their group of people shouldn't have to be constantly letting go, that right. it should be something that is addressed at some point. And so there's a lot of attempts to raise consciousness about that. Now, I agree, disinviting speakers is not really the best approach, and, and especially not shouting them down. But I do think, for example, um, for example, like I did support one speaker not you know being disinvited, and it was I, I was I'm a Fordham University grad, and as an eighth as an outspoken atheist, I have nothing but positive things to say about that environment at that religious school. Um, you know, I was able to get my PhD there with no interference, and I you know like completely across the divide approval of that right. school, and I was concerned that that Ann Coulter besmirches Fordham's reputation; it makes them look. Like she's not an academic. She doesn't sure. deserve an academic platform. Um, she doesn't, you know, and she's not their best representative of the of the conservatives. I have no problem with conservatives at Fordham, you know. Like that's, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Um, so, so, uh, so I can see, I can see objections that someone's not qualified, uh, and I can see, but I don't believe in shouting down. Uh, what I what I find though is that a lot of the speech which is saying this is offensive. There's a lot of people who say, well, what are you surprised? And their point is, no, we're not surprised, but it's still wrong, right? And yeah. they get the stoicism used at them. And I think, I think what's happening is there's a mindset that if you are offended, it means you're too weak and not good enough a stoic. When, when in reality, marginalized people have to do a lot more stoicism on an ordinary basis and just getting up the gumption to take the positive acts towards justice requires getting a little bit agitated and requires raising consciousness. And I feel like there's a lot of accusation that, aha, you're just falling to your emotions. Yeah. And someone like Jonathan Haidt, who's accusing these students when they're when when a lot of their objections are legitimate like why do we just reflexively support racists as as names on our, on the names of our buildings like why do we just accept that and they're getting told instead and that's a philosophical argument it's a moral argument and they're told you're just taking offense you want to be coddled or something yeah, yeah, yeah. and and you have you have you have protesters when they express emotion uh, there, there's, and I, and I bring this up because Jonathan Haidt is very specific in this movement. Uh, Jonathan Haidt or Haidt, I'm sorry. Haidt, yeah. Haidt. Mm -hmm. Haidt. Uh, Jonathan Haidt is very, uh, he wrote this very famous Atlantic article called the coddling of the, and, uh, the, you know, the, the American mind. Yeah. and the problem is that he's, he's equating this as though these are just spoiled brats, not getting their way. And yeah. and just and just sweeping away the moral substance of the arguments yeah. by saying had only they learned to deal with tough counter ideas, but in but it's but that to me is a silencing of their ideas, well, their moral ideas expressed through emotion. Let's but, let's yeah, let's yeah. stick with the I, yeah. I I don't want to, everything that you've just said is is quite controversial. I completely disagree with the view of hate. I think his article is spot on, correct. I see what's going on that he's talking about in my own school. Um, 
describing people at Princeton and Yale as a press strikes me as ridiculous. Um, and so let's not get into that aspect because that's a matter of major dispute. And um, sure. we yeah, made, yeah, yeah. I want to stick with the stuff that has to do with stoicism. And I think the yeah. kernel of this is, and I want Massimo to reply is, look, um, what we're talking about is the stoic principle of radical self-sufficiency, right? That yeah. is that um, I am responsible for my own happiness and others in my own eudaimonia and others can't take that away from me. In other words, if, 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 I'm, if I'm getting upset, it's because I am allowing others to bring me down. I am allowing, and what you're saying, Dan, is that isn't this just a way to justify um, telling people that they ought not to, uh, that, 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 that their concerns don't need to be met, right? Yeah. Um, um, that's what strikes me is at the, at the yeah. heart of this, is that it's it, the claim of radical self-sufficiency, while perhaps personally useful in a lot of ways, also can be used as a kind of reason um, to dismiss people's Correct. concerns, right? So, Basel, what is your yeah. reply to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, absolutely. So, so, first of all, let me make a short comment about Jonathan Haidt, because I know him personally, uh, not well, but we're not friends or anything, but we're colleagues He's down at NYU, actually, it's not far from here. Um, I'm on record as being very critical in print of, of, of Jonathan uh, writings, about that particular article on, in The Atlantic, um, I guess I fall somewhere in between the two of you. On the one hand, I find certain things, certain uh, issues, uh, certain attitudes by Jonathan very dismissive, you know, sort of unnecessarily dismissive of actual problems. On the other hand, I have seen uh, on, on, on some university campuses uh, uh, situations that actually fall much more easily into the category that he's described. But as then Kay says, you know, that's not the topic for today. What is it? The, the topic was interesting um, uh, to me is 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 uh, um, this issue of offense versus moral arm. So first of all, I would like to make that distinction. Right? To me, offense is not the same thing as a moral harm. Now, offense may be a signal that you have, you know, an emotional signal that you have been morally armed. But unfortunately, then, as as you yourself pointed out, um, plenty of people, both historically and now. Genuinely, not not you know they don't make it up. They don't they don't pretend. They genuinely feel offended, morally offended, for things that they really shouldn't be offended by. So you know, a fundamentalist Christian who is offended because I teach evolution uh, in my classes. Well, if I I know because I talk to these people, I know they do feel a genuine moral offense, um, but I don't think it's justified. Right, yeah, um, I agree, of course. It, and but then on the same time, on the same token, you know, uh, a member of black, you know, of, of an African American community who sees uh, what has happened, let's say, over the last year, uh, in a number of incidents with the police, uh, and feels morally offended. Well, what the hell? They do have a hell of a lot of a good reason to be morally offended. My point is that feeling moral offense is not a reliable indicator of actual moral damage, right? Sure. And so what I think, for my own practice, what I found, what I'm finding useful, uh, you know, is, is making that distinction, reminding myself of that distinction, and trying to be, me personally, not telling other people, but me personally, trying to be less offended and more sort of analytical about these situations. I, I, I used to be, to some extent I still am, but, uh, you know, as, just as my girlfriend, um, you know, I can get upset and I can get, you know, sort of... Uh, 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 emotional about certain things, 
But one of the things that I've noticed, and I wrote about this in, in, my, in my blog over the last year and a half or during my practice of stoicism, that that has happened much and much less than it used to be. Uh, I have developed more of a sense of humor and more of a sort of analytical sort of sense of you know, detachment from a problem, which I do think has been, A, helpful for me. My blood pressure is lower and, and, and I feel better. Uh, but also it's been more helpful for other people. I mean, I've had uh, discussions where there were other people present, and normally I would have gotten upset with a particular individual. Uh, and I know from experience that that getting upset uh, in, a, in a sort of very emotional way would actually undermine my point mm-hmm. towards some people, you know, some bystanders. Uh, the fact that now I have in much, you know, much more control because I keep reminding myself that you know, he cannot offend you, whatever he says. It's not, you know, that's, you, you deal with it. It's not an offense. Let's talk about the actual specifics that he's uh, bringing up. Um, I found that to be more effective, actually, in, in communicating with sort of with third parties, with bystanders about these kind of things. So even from a practical perspective. So there's that part, that, 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 uh, that, uh, that component of the discussion. The other one, which I think we haven't touched on, although we sort of went there in two or three, two or three times, is this idea of, Stoicism being a self-centered, uh, you know, philosophy, you know, it's, it's all about me kind of stuff. Uh, I really honestly don't think that's true. I don't think that any of the eudaimonic philosophies actually can be accused of that. Uh, perhaps a little bit Epicureanism, um, because Epicurus actually uh, explicitly canceled uh, uh, his students to detach themselves, to disengage from the social and especially from the political. But that was not the case for any of the other eudaimonic philosophies, including Stoicism. Um, one of the three, uh, one of the four virtues in Stoicism, of course, is the virtue of justice. And one of the three disciplines that Epictetus uh, highlights to his students in the discourse is the discipline of action which is related to the concept of justice. And uh, it's very clear in Epictetus. I was just rereading before this, this uh, show uh, the book that uh, Long wrote on Epictetus, which is wonderful. It's a wonderful commentary on Epictetus. It's actually the only modern commentary on Epictetus, a scholarly commentary on Epictetus in book format, book length. And, and Long makes very clear that uh, Epictetus saw those things, the, 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 the three disciplines, that he talks about, and that he probably introduced, that's probably a, a novelty that, that Epictetus uh, introduced in, in Stoicism, the discipline of desire, the discipline of action, the discipline of, uh, of assent. Um, the, what, he's, what he's talking about, what, uh, uh, these are, are intertwined and they are inextricable. Your eudaimonia is affected by everybody else's eudaimonia because we're a social animal, because we live in a society. And so for Epictetus, uh, the way to further, there's no distinction, no, no clear distinction between furthering your eudaimonia, uh, your flourishing, and furthering other people's flourishing in eudaimonia, because your eudaimonia depends in inextricable ways from, you know, we're, again, we're social animals. So to me, that, the virtue of justice, the, the concept of a discipline of, of action, those actually are explicitly social components of of, of, sorry, of stoicism. Now, it's true. Stoicism is not a social political philosophy. You know, it's not a communitarian philosophy or anything like that, for sure. I mean, I'm not, again, I, I want to try to be very careful about not rationalizing and not going beyond what is a sort of reasonable uh, limit. But it is pretty clearly there 
and it's there in an important part, in an important sense that that sort of needs to be recognized. Otherwise, we do a disservice. Again, we don't read the the Stoics sort of uh, charitably, um, even historically, right? The Stoics that we know of were teachers, um, uh, politicians, generals, emperors. These were people who very much wrote and acted in a way to sort of change society for what they thought was the best. Uh, now, we may or may not agree with their specific goals and their specific way of doing it, of course, right? Uh, but it's quite clear to me that, the, that an integral component of Stoicism is a concern for other beings. Uh, Hierocles, who was one of the Stoics in the second century, came up with this famous idea of the concentric circles of, of concern, uh, which starts with you only not because you're the most important thing in the universe, but because you start with you. Because you know it's 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 your own self that you begin uh, that you start with examining the rest of the world, and then the additional circles are your family, uh, your friends, uh, people who live in your city, people who live in your country, and then eventually humanity at large. Right? And his idea was that you need that part of the practice of the Stoicism is to sort of bring these circles closer and closer to yourself, to the point where he actually advocated going around and talking to strangers, referring to them as aunt or or, or uh, father or grandfather, in order to sort of, uh, depending on the age, in order to feel psychologically that they were closer to you, that they were re your relatives, right? So all of these things thing makes pretty clear that there's no at the very least there's no contradiction between being a Stoic. And being, you know, sort of socially conscious and and even socially and politically active, um, but of course the stoic perspective would be that you do that analytically. You do that, if anything, with a sense of humor, not with a sense of of sort of offense. Sure. I guess I guess a final thought in response to what you guys have just said. Uh, is that uh, just to kind of clarify? Look, within within the blogosphere, I have made many enemies among social justice people by arguing for civility and rational discourse over 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 a view that some people deserve to be abused because they're wrong. I mean, I understand all of that. Um, I just think that um, the and 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 of course, I don't I don't think like out of out of every complaint of offense that I see from social justice side, I probably it's fifty fifty that I think is legitimate or it's not. Uh, I just think, uh, so I do agree we need to take each one case by case. Um, however, I think what winds up happening is there's an ability to broad swell dismiss an entire set of moral objections because they come in the form of moral offense. And I wouldn't say, I guess my, my, my problem is that instead of saying, because my feelings of moral offense might be wrong sometimes, I agree, that's, that's fallible, um, I still am... I'm leery of, of of turning it into a purely subjective matter, rather than a um, and a uh, the positing of an of 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 a proposition to be argued. Right, something is morally yeah, offensive yeah. here. Oh, I, agree. I agree. And 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 so I think saying I'm morally offended should not be the end of the conversation, uh, but but it also it shouldn't end because the other person acquiesces. In unilaterally, but it also shouldn't end because moral emotions are just your feelings, man. And I and I feel like it's worth. I feel like it's really worth reminding ourselves that when there's a moral offense claim, we get with then we turn to the argument. And I feel like on the one side there's a sense that moral offense should be the final word, and on the other sense, the other side, it's moral offense is a symptom. There's something wrong with you. And yeah. I guess no, I, I certainly yeah. wouldn't. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't go that far. By the way. 
not many people go around clubbing other people, social justice, uh, you know, defenders of social justice with stoicism simply because stoicism is not particularly, you know, it's not exactly uh, uh, a household name. Although Jonathan Haidt did, uh, interestingly, but um, that may be a conversation for another time, but there is a a, a very important distinction to be made between stoicism with a capital S, meaning the philosophy, and stoicism with a little s, meaning the common term of, you know, just stuff it up, man, because that's what it is. Um, uh, stoicism, the philosophy, is not about toughing it up. In fact, there are plenty of examples, even in the ancient text, of you know, there's this famous story of the philosopher uh, on a on a ship in the middle of a tempest, who you know sort of is, is afraid and and is and is uh, you know freaking out. And then after the the the, the storm is gone, uh, the captain of the ship makes fun of him and says, you know, so there's your stoicism, right? You, and I saw you; you were just afraid as anybody else. And the philosopher's response is, of course I was afraid like everybody else. I'm a human being. But do you see me now dwelling on the fact that I could have died? No. The storm, storm is over. I move on <laughs> in business, right? So, so there is a distinction there between sort of the capital S and the little s. And I think that people like Haidt who try to use stoicism, if at all uh, uh, sort of popular, as a club in the head, they really engage in this, this little s thing, which I think it needs to be uh, you know, sort of taken separately. But But... My general, while I don't disagree with anything you just said, my general uh, reminder myself, basically, is, look, if I'm having a conversation with, I don't know, a racist, let's say, or a misogynist, or, you know, you name it, um, and and I say, look, I think you're wrong on moral grounds, and here is why I think you're wrong on moral grounds, and by the way, you offended me. It seems to me that adding that, and by the way, you offended me, does nothing to further my, uh, my argument. And in fact, it kind of, in a, in a sense, indirectly undermines it because, ah, so it's all about you and it's all about your feelings. No, it's not about my feelings. Mm-hmm. I have feelings, and those feelings, uh, I do recognize that moral, we do have a moral instinct. And so that, it, no, we cannot dismiss the, the sense of outrage or the sense of, you know, sort of offense because it may actually be a signal of something going on there. Um, but what the Stoics do say in, is you don't dismiss the feelings. You just, dis, you just step outside of it for a minute and uh, I'm up to the point where you can either give or withdraw assent from that feeling, right? So sure. let's take a, a much less con- uh, controversial one, being afraid, as in the, in the story of the, of, the, of the storm, right? There's many, very good reasons to be afraid of certain situations, right? It would be silly for me to go into a restaurant and see somebody with a, with a gun drawn and not be afraid. That, that would really not be the stoic thing to do. But the stoic thing to do would be to uh, take a breath and then say, okay, let me look at the situation here. Is this an actual gun you know, by a bad guy? Or maybe they're shooting, I'm in New York, maybe they're shooting a movie, you know, an episode of you know, Law and Order or something like that. And if I have the time to think it over and I say, oh, actually, it is, in fact, a movie, then to keep being afraid of it, it's silly and it's, you know, it's something that I don't need to give assent to. That, that's, that's the only distinction I wanted to make. Yeah, and, and, I, and I, I, I want us to have rational discussions, not just devolve into emoting at each other. But, but it's also, um, I guess, just the last, the last qualifier on that is that, uh, no, of course, just telling someone in addition to a good argument that I'm offended isn't isn't going to do much more. But I think that I think that part of how our brains work 
is emotionally. Now, of course, getting angry and yelling at someone will also shut them down, make them defensive. So there's lots of things we have to do there, separating them from their deed, you know, not, you know, not wedding them to it, right? You know, you are this deed, so now they have to defend it. Separating them, let's just look at that, you know, that thought, you know, I, I believe in all that, uh, but I just also know that, it, that there are certain sort of emotional uh, balances where people know what generally gets, um, you know, what's generally going to get emotional resistance. And that that is a curb on some bad behavior, that they know emotional resistance exists. And especially when people aren't sensitized to a particular thing is wrong, some people getting angry as a model that this is a bad thing is a way of helping them connect with the badness there because it's how we communicate that we see something as bad. Uh, but yeah, of course, I don't. I think we should minimize that as much as possible. But in a protest context, it's going to be there that anger is going to be one of the tools. And I wouldn't want a stoicism to 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 be prejudiced against it. And I also don't want the impression. I mean, the the other last thing to point out is that when you're not personally affected by something, it's easier for you to be detached. And I feel like the social justice side has made a lot of good arguments that some of the reasons that some people are more uh, emotional is because it does affect them at uh, more and they're more sensitized to the issue. And that doesn't make them less rational. It actually makes them more engaged with what's wrong and more alert to what's wrong. And that's why they're so emotionally invested. Um, And so I don't want to prejudice towards those who are less emotional in general, which again, small s stoicism is often invoked to do. And that's what bothers me. Ben Kay, how are we doing on the time? So we're we're over an hour and thirty five minutes, and so we, we probably Holy need crap. to we need to wrap this up. Um, I, I fortunately um, I'm completely dissatisfied, and so hopefully <laughs> that means that we can do more of it <laughs> in the future. I still I still am completely unclear as to whether uh, Stoics, Stoics believe that virtue is self sufficient or not. Um, I've heard both. I've heard both things said today. I still don't know whether I think mastery of emotions in the way the Stoic means is a good thing. I have lots of reasons for thinking that I think it's actually not a good thing. I was going to ask some questions about Stoicism in the arts and whether you can have good arts if you uh, if you're too stoical. But we'll have to leave those for another time because. Uh, we can't do this to the audience. We can't go this far. <laughs> well, let, let's see if the audience is receptive to all those. Well, then we'll have to do another one. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> Anytime. It's a, it's a real honor to be here. All right. So uh, thank you very much, uh, gentlemen. And um, I, uh, I'll communicate with you once, obviously, this goes up. Get me whatever links you want me to put on. Yep. And I look forward to hopefully maybe seeing you both again. Sounds good. Thanks so much again. It's been an honor. All right. Take care. Thank you. Have fun. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, Or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.